As you've already seen a little bit of this screen, we've got quite a bit of an ambitious study ahead of us tonight. We may not get through all of those topics, but it's going to be, as we shall see in a moment, what I've got on the screen. Firstly, we're going to look at sacrifice in the kingdom age. Then we're going to look at the kings and priests that will be associated with those sacrifices in the age to come. What's known as the law of the house as given to us in chapter 43. And in the words of the psalmist, my soul longeth for the courts of Yahweh, Psalm 84, how that fits into this prophecy of the temple. And then a brief look at the cloud by day and the shining by night as the temple is covered by a cloud and the pillar of fire by night. The elevation of the altar right in the centre of the temple, we're going to look at that. And the great cubit that is emphasised particularly in chapter 43, dealing with the altar and the ariel in detail, and that's another name for the altar. The ariel means the lion of God, because it's the great. The sacrifices are consumed by this great lion, this great altar of God, uh, in the very centre of the temple, and the relationship between Elijah's altar and the, that uh, altar in the temple, and then finally a comparison between Solomon's altar and the and the temple altar as far as size is concerned. Now we may not get to all of that tonight. So God willing, if we continue on with this, we will pick it up and finish off what we have missed. But let's come back to the beginning. Firstly, to sacrifices in the kingdom age. This is a question that has troubled some brothers and sisters now and in the past. Will there be sacrifices in the kingdom age? And why will there be sacrifices in the, in the kingdom age? And we need to ask question, will do the scriptures plainly foretell the restoration of animal sacrifices in the age to come? And if the scriptures do tell us that, well, why do they seem to appear contrary to other passages which particularly are in the New Testament scriptures? Well, you know, why, is there a conflict between the two? There can't be a conflict. Scripture must be in harmony. If there's and of course we're referring to this passage here now in Hebrews chapter 9 just come across to Hebrews chapter 9 where Paul talks about the, the law and how the work of Christ far exceeded that of the law and how the sacrifice of Christ was far superior to the sacrifices under the law in Hebrews chapter 9 And we'll just pick it up. We've got this quotation from Hebrews chapter 9, but we won't read from verse 11. We will pick it up from verse 9 of Hebrews chapter 9, speaking about the things under the law, the things in the tabernacle, where it says, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by 
his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption. And for us, as it is in italics there, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctified to the purifying of the flesh, and this is the verse that we wanted to look at in particular, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How much more important is the sacrifice of Christ? Well, of course it is much more important. It is the great sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're not taking away from that. But the scriptures do quite clearly teach that there clearly teach that there will be sacrifices in the kingdom age. So we're going to have to reconcile those two concepts together. Sacrifices in the kingdom age and the great sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now to understand that, to understand that, we have to appreciate that the law will not be completely done away with. We might think, well, look, the law that was given by Moses to the children of Israel will be completely done away with. But we've just read a passage there in Hebrews chapter 9, and this time come back to verse 9 and verse 10. And I've got verse 10 on the screen. We're just going to read this again because the law is not going to be done away with, but the scriptures say the law will be amended. Just read this again, which was a figure, verse uh, 10, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that, the, that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings, which by the way, the word divers washing means baptisms, so the Jews even practised baptisms, and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time, until and you see I've got that highlighted on the screen, until the time of reformation. That time of reformation, the word reformation really means to make amendment to the time the law will be amended. And so what the scriptures tell us, that in the kingdom of God, a law will be reintroduced. There will be a law in the kingdom of God. We've got a constitution in Australia. We have a law for Australia. The children of Israel had the law of Moses. They had a constitution. They were a nation. They had a king. That was Yahweh. That was their king. They had a law that was their constitution. That when the kingdom of God, which is the, is the nation of Israel and the earth, re-established again, when the kingdom of God is established again in the earth, there will be a law. And it will be the law of Moses, but it will be amended. As our, revised ver as our standard version says, at the time of reformation, but it will be amended. There will be a law in the kingdom of God by which the people will have to comply. And part of that law, part of that law, will be the offering of sacrifices. Now, Paul also says, well, look, if the priesthood is going to be, if the law is going to be changed, there's going to be a change of priesthood also. So there's going to be an order of priests. There's going to, be, in fact, be two orders of priests in the kingdom. And under the law, there's only the Levitical order of priests and the sons of Aaron conducted that work. But in the kingdom, there will be two orders. So the order of priesthood will be changed. Now, this is all related to sacrifices in the kingdom age. So, in the Old Testament times, animal sacrifices didn't take away sin. They didn't atone for sin. They merely pointed forward to the great sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. We all understand that. So, in the age to come, sacrifices will not atone for sin, but they'll merely point back to the, the, uh, the great atoning work that the Lord Jesus Christ 
Jesus Christ accomplished. So but I've got it illustrated for you like this on the screen. Here we have the one efficacious sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ right in the centre of that chart. And of course, he's the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. All the sacrifices, the sacrifices of the law, the sacrifices that were the time of Abraham pointed forward to that great sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in the kingdom age, sacrifices will still be held and they will point back to that great sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's not, not going to be some new introduction of a new concept of teaching in relation to the forgiveness of sins and the work of Christ. It's still the same teaching but, and Christ will be the centre, but there will be sacrifices reintroduced again in the kingdom of God. The scriptures are quite clear on that. Now there are lots and lots of quotations. I'm just going to put up a few for you that speak about sacrifices in the kingdom age just to reinforce the point that the Bible does quite clearly teach that. And so in Jeremiah, for example, it, it has this quotation that says, Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised unto the house of Israel and to the house of Judah, which is the re-establishment of the kingdom. Neither shall the priests want a man before me to offer burnt offerings and to do sacrifices continually. They won't want a priest because there will be priests and they will offer sacrifices for continually. Jeremiah says that the Levites, they will minister unto me. And then we have this passage in Isaiah 56, which talks once again about the kingdom of God and the, the <coughs> eunuchs that were faithful to God. It was say, says that in the kingdom age, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted. And so he says in that passage, even then will I bring to my holy mountain. Now I just want you to notice that just as a by as we're passing through these passages, my holy mountain. It's telling us straight away that in the temple there is a holy mountain, the mountain on which the altar is constructed. Then, even then will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer, a reference to the temple. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. So the scriptures are very, very clear. There will be burnt offerings, there will be sacrifices, there will be an altar. And the purpose of that will be to remind the people of the great sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, and once we start to look at the uh, quotations that refer to the temple, we find they're right through the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament passages. Here's one from Jeremiah 51. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. And of course, this is a reference to the, the temple. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with bird offerings and with whole bird offerings, then shall they offer bullocks upon mine altar. Malachi chapter 3, that they may offer unto Yahweh an offering in righteousness. And then all these quotations in Ezekiel chapter 40, they slew the burnt sacrifice. Ezekiel chapter 42, the meat offering and the sin offering and the trespass offering. All of these passages now are references to the sacrifices in the temple. Behold, this is the law of the house. This shall be high, the higher place of the altar, telling us where the altar will be in chapter 43. And there are a lot more passages. If you want to look, you'll find quotation after quotation about sacrifices in the kingdom age. 
Now, what will they do? I said, well, they'll point back to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, but they'll also teach the enormity and the consequences of sin. And it will teach the consequences of sin is death, the wages of sin, even in the kingdom age. A sinner being accursed will die. People will, there will be a mortal population. People will die. But now, man generally will not know death by bloodshedding. There won't be warfare. There won't be violence as we see it in the earth today, a world filled with violence and bloodshedding. There will be bloodshedding, but there won't be to the extent it is today. So sacrifices will teach the extent to which the Messiah, he gave his life, he shed his blood, which is a reference to the giving of his life, for the benefit of mankind. So when they come up to the temple and they actually do see the Lord Jesus Christ, the focus will be on the glories of the temple, but it will remind the people, these sacrifices will remind the people of the great sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. They'll teach the principle that God requires of man a life of complete dedication. So when an animal was slain and the blood flowed out of that animal, the blood was the life of that animal, God is saying he wants the life of that person. He doesn't want our blood. He wants, he wants a person to dedicate themselves, to dedicate their lives to God. And he'll, God will still require that of people. That will require it in the kingdom age. Every Jew will have to do that. Every Jew will have to be baptised and the rebels that don't will be purged out. And it will teach that the body which consists of flesh and blood is mortal, that it will die. So sacrifices will teach vital principles that will focus the attention on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will see that sacrifices are a central part of the teaching of the scriptures, and particularly in the kingdom age. So just come now to that passage I've got on the screen there to Ezekiel chapter 40, where it now talks about where the, the slaying blocks will be located for these animals to be sacrificed on. Ezekiel chapter 40, Ezekiel's taken into the outer court. As he looks across the outer court in chapter 40, he sees these slain blocks where the burnt offerings are washed in chapters 40 through to, uh, and verse 35. And so we read, And the man of brass brought me, that's Ezekiel, to the north gate and he measured it and the little chambers and so forth. And you come right down to verse 38. And the chambers and the entries thereof were by the posts of the gates where they washed the burnt offerings. So Ezekiel was now being shown these tables and I've got the tables where they're located shown. There were four tables as they came up into the stairs into the temple, two on the left hand side and two on the right hand side. Those tables were for the slaying of the sacrifices, so the people will be bringing animals up with them, sheep and oxen. They'll be slain at the, near the porch or the entrance into the temple. The pieces of the carcass then, the choice pieces that will be offered as sacrifices, will be taken through that porchway that you can see there into the inner porch, and you see two more tables on the left and on the right where they will be washed and flayed and cut up and being prepared for sacrifices. That's what it tells us there in chapter 39 and verse 39 of that chapter. And it says, And in the porch of the gate were two tables on this side and two tables on that side to slay thereon the burnt offerings 
and the sin offerings and the trespass offerings. And at the side without, as one goeth up to the entry of the north gate, were two tables. And on the other side, which were at the porch of the gate, were two tables. And it's just reinforcing it. Verse 41, four tables were on this side and four tables on that side. So there's eight tables altogether. So you can see the tables there. Or if you look, look through a cross-section, as you come up the stairs there were the slaying blocks as you entered the, just before you started to climb the stairs, you go through the outer court, uh, the buildings of the outer court, and you come to the flaying and the washing tables just on the inside. And the scriptures are quite clear. It says, verse 41, four tables were on this side and four tables on that side by the side of the gate, eight tables were on, they slew the sacrifices. So in fact, there were eight tables altogether, as it tells us in verse 41. And then it goes on to tell us what they were made of in verse 42. Verse 42. And the four tables were of hewn stone for the burnt offering of a cubit and a half long and a cubit and a half broad and a cube, one cubit high. Whereupon they laid the instruments wherewith they slew the burnt offerings and the sacrifice. And within were hooks and handbreadth fastened around about and upon the table was the flesh of the offering. So this next illustration will show you you've got like four horns on the altar now and four hooks to, to tie the, the sacrifice on to hold it so it doesn't slip off and uh, it was there for the the sacrifices to be prepared. They're about a cubit and a half. So a cubit, remember, a cubit was from here to here. So one and a half of those square and one cubit high. And they was so the scriptures are very, very clear. They're very, very specific. There will be sacrifices and there will be tables. There will be arrangements. Now that's going to bring us, that'll bring our focus into the, the altar in the centre. We're not going to get to deal with the altar completely in depth tonight, but it's focusing our attention. These sacrifices will then be taken by the mortal priests into a certain part of the temple so far and handed then to the immortal priest who will then facilitate them so they will be taken up to the top of the altar. So there will be, as the scriptures tell us, priests that will officiate and we know that passage in the scripture where it says that we will be kings and priests in the kingdom age. In fact, the sons, we will be known as the sons of Zodak, Zadok or immortal priests in the kingdom age. We have that quotation which I've got on the screen there from Revelation 5.10 and he has made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. We know that passage well, that's a promise. We, we are promised that we will be made like unto kings and priests in the kingdom age. A better rendition of that is that we will be made a kingdom of priests. The emphasis on being priests, we will be made Yes, we're going to be kings, rulers over one city, rulers over five cities, rulers over ten cities. There will be degrees of reward. But one of our great functions in the kingdom age will be priests, immortal priests. There will be immortal priests, but we will be, God willing, if we're found worthy, immortal priests. That was a promise that was made in Exodus 19, where God had said to the nation of Israel, he said, look, this nation that I've chosen to be my nation that they might carry my name and reflect my name, shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
God's purpose is he always wanted a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And so we say, well, all right, I'm going to be a priest. Well, what, are, what would qualify me to be a priest? What are the qualifications of a priest? Well, you see, we're told what the qualifications of a priest are in Hebrews chapter 5. And it tells us there in verses 1 through to 2 that every high priest taken from amongst men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. I just want you to think deeply about these words for a couple of minutes. Priest has to be taken from amongst men. The reason why he has to be taken, he or she is taken from amongst men is so they understand the problems that men and women have. You know, ecclesial life is not easy. Ecclesial life has got all sorts of problems and issues and sometimes we complain about ecclesial life and problems in ecclesial life. The reason for having the problems in ecclesial life is to develop us to be priests in the kingdom age, to deal with all the mortal population. And so we will understand. So we're being prepared. God's not torturing us now with problems in ecclesial life. He's blessing us so we will be prepared to be priests in the kingdom age. So we'll be able to offer gifts, and that means giving ourselves in service to them, and sacrifices for sins, who can have compassion on the ignorant. You know, sometimes we, we, we look at the people of the world and we say, well, they are, they are very wicked and evil people, but they're ignorant. And there will be some people, there will be some people who eventually will turn to God when the kingdom is established. It will be a terrible time for them. But it will be the role of us as priests to have compassion on those people. And on them that are, and this is also the truth with us now, how we deal with our brethren and sisters. On those that don't understand all the principles of the truth that we don't understand. We, we, we understand that they don't understand them. Or them that are out of the way. You know, we think brother or sister so-and-so is a problem because they do this or they've got that problem. Well, we've got to try and help them, not condemn them. That's the role of a priest. Because why do we do that? Because we ourselves are compassed with that infirmity. We've also got problems. We have got all those issues. We've all got diabolos. We've all got that those impulses in our nature that cause us to think and to do the wrong thing. And everyone's got it. But we can deal with it to a certain extent. We can ask God for help. We've got the Word of God. They don't have the Word of God. But even in ecclesial life, so... You know, all these, we are being prepared for this priesthood. It's, you know, I'm labouring that point, but it's, it's what we will be doing in the kingdom. We're not going to be sitting on clouds playing harps. We know that. We're going to be dealing with solving all the problems of the world and establishing a righteous kingdom as righteous priests. So we will be the priests that will, I believe, on a rotational basis, will work in the temple and then work out amongst the nations administering God's law. Now we read that passage in chapter 43 tonight about the two orders of priests, sorry chapter 44. Just come to chapter 44. Chapter 44 and verse, well it, does, it starts at verse 9. Chapter 44 and verse 9. Thus saith the Lord Yahweh, no stranger, uncircumcised in heart, nor uncircumcised in flesh shall enter into my sanctuary 
of any stranger that is amongst the children of Israel. And the Levites that are gone away far from me when Israel went astray, which went astray away from me after their idols, they shall even bear their iniquity. Yet they shall be ministers in my sanctuary, having charge of the gates of the house and ministering to the house. They shall slay the burnt offerings and the sacrifices for the people, and they shall stand before them to minister unto them. Because they ministered unto them before their idols and caused the house of Israel to fall into iniquity, therefore have I lifted up my hand against them, said the Lord God, and they shall bear their iniquity. So the scriptures are telling us that the national Israelites who are Levites, now we're not talking, they're not, not people who are going to be raised from the grave, these are the, the mortal Levites who are alive and survive the, at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Levites who accept Christ, who have come into the, the temple, they will serve. Now, and of course God's saying because of what their forebears did, because they taught Israel to, to turn away from God and sacrifice to idols, they're going to be mortal priests. They're going to have something to do, but their work is going to be restricted. So that because they went astray, they will be in charge of the gates, they will minister to the house, they will slay the sacrifices for the people. They're made keepers of the charge of the house. That's the Levites. Whereas the sons of Zadok are mentioned for us in verse 15 of this chapter 44. But, it says, but the priests, the Levites, the sons of Zadok, that kept the charge of, and you notice it says, my sanctuary. Now this is referring, the sanctuary is referring to the most holy, the holy place, the inner part of the temple. But it's also referring to the, the people that have kept God's ways in their probationary life as mortals, us. We're keepers of God's sanctuary now. How do we keep our minds and our brains? What do we do with our own minds? What do we do with our own bodies? How do we conduct ourselves in ecclesial life? How do we treat everybody in the ecclesial world? Are we priests who administer the things and are in charge of my sanctuary, but the priests, the Levites, the sons of Zadok, Zadok means righteousness. Righteousness. That kept the charge of my sanctuary when the children of Israel went astray from me, they shall come near to me to minister unto me, and they shall stand before me to offer unto me the fat and the blood, said Yahweh Elohim, said the Lord Yahweh. So the mortal priest will hand the sacrifices over to these people, these immortal priests, and the immortal priest will then bear those sacrifices up to the altar before Yahweh. Verse 16. They shall enter into my sanctuary, into the inner part of the temple. They shall come near to my table. There's going to be a table in the temple, a memorial table. They shall come near to my table to minister unto me and they shall keep a capital my charge. So they are, the sons of Zadok are the immortal priests. There are two orders of priests, mortal priests and immortal priests. Now we aspire to be the sons of Zadok. They kept the charge of the sanctuary. They will enter into the sanctuary. They will come near to the table. They offer unto Yahweh the fat and the blood. They shall keep Yahweh's charge, my charge, as he calls it. Now, this, the, the Levitical priests were told that they would keep the charge of the house. The word charge means 
the custody, the mustering, the, you know, organising the people as they come in the gate, looking after their sacrifices. But the Levitical priests, the, 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 sons, rather, the sons of Zadok, their charge is different. Theirs is a, a, a service, a watch, a moral obligation. They will keep the charge of the inner part. They've got a higher responsibility. It goes on to say about the Levites, they stand before the people to minister unto them. They come not near any of the holy things, nor to Yahweh's presence, the Yahweh angel and the Lord Jesus Christ. They keep the charge of the house, whereas the sons of Zadok, they stand before Yahweh to minister unto him. They come near to minister unto Yahweh, and they keep the charge of the altar and the table. They keep my charge. So the, the altar, which is right on the top of the mountain, in the very, as we can see there, in the centre of the temple, and the table, the memorial table, they keep that in the innermost part of the temple. That is the responsibility of the sons of Zadok, sons of righteousness. Not that we are righteous, but because we have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ and we try to live lives that are in accordance with the requirements of the Lord Jesus Christ, Righteousness is imputed to us. And I make that point. It's not just good enough saying, well, I'm baptised, I've been covered by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There has to be associated our faith that is lived out in works. So it's, it's, it's a living way of life to be the, the priests of Yahweh who will who administer now. We are, we are training in priesthood, so how we conduct ourselves with our brethren and sisters and the issues in ecclesial life is in training for priesthood priesthood in the age to come. The Levites, well they're the natural sons of Levi and they'll be the mortal priests in the kingdom age and the sons of Zadok, well they're the priests after the order of Melchizedek or Melchizedok, you see, king of, the, the word Melchizedek means Mel, Mel, Meli, king Zadok, king of righteousness. They will be the immortalised saints and priests as we saw from Revelation chapter 5. Now Malachi says, the Spirit says through Malachi of the Levites that Yahweh shall sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver and he shall purify, and this is Yahweh manifested in the Lord Jesus Christ, he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto Yahweh an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto Yahweh, as in the days of old and as in former years. So the sons of Levi will be refined. They're going to be purged out. They're going to be regathered with, by the work of Elijah. And it's going to take 40 years. We understand that from Ezekiel chapter 20 and Micah chapter 7, that the regathering of Israel will take a lot. What we see in the land of Israel today is only a token fulfilment of that. The great work is yet in the future when they will be regathered and they will be purified. The rebels will be purged out and they'll pass under the rod and those that are brought into the land, the, the, those of the tribe of Judah and those that will be Levites will be given this great commission. They will be purified. But the sons of Zadok, the immortal priests, you see it says, now here's a quotation from Psalm 99. Yahweh reigneth let the people tremble, exalt ye Yahweh our God, and worship at his footstool, for he is holy. Moses and Aaron among his priests. Now can anybody tell me what's wrong with that quotation? Now it's straight out of the Bible, but there's something wrong with it. 
Moses and Aaron, well, Moses wasn't a priest, was he? Moses was not a priest. Moses and Aaron, his priests among his And Samuel, well, Samuel wasn't a priest, was he? Well, you see, he was, because he was a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He was Zadok. He was, he was like you and I, one of those ones who were considered to be the righteous ones, the ones who kept the charge of the sanctuary. So that's why I put that quotation up there. It's just hidden away there in the scriptures. Amongst them that call upon the, his name, they called upon Yahweh and he answered them. They will be the priests, the, the, the immortal priests in the kingdom age. Those that have kept the charge of the sanctuary, the sons of Zadok. All right, so we've been talking a lot about the work of the priests and the sacrifices. We're going to zoom in now and, and have a... We can't do it all tonight. In fact, we're running out of time very quickly. We can't do it all tonight, but we're going to have a closer look at the altar. Now, we're following Ezekiel around the temple, and you can see the red lines where Ezekiel has moved. We're arrived at point eight, which is the, the laminar-coloured line, where he now comes and he measures the altar in the centre of the temple. And that brings us back to chapter 40, and verse 47, just to start with, it's scattered throughout the prophecy. But in chapter 40 and verse 47, we first read of the altar. So in this section here of chapter 40, it's talking about, in verse 46, for example, the chambers of the whose prospect is towards the north is for the priests, the keepers of the charge of the altar. These are the sons of Zadok. Those in charge of the altar are the, the immortal sons of Zadok amongst the sons of Levi who came near to Yahweh to minister unto him. Then it says, So he measured the court... Now this is a measurement of the altar, a hundred cubits long and a hundred cubits broad, four square, and the altar that, that was before the house. Just a couple of points on that verse. You'll notice that it says cubits, and I've been saying to you at this point of time that most of the measurements, nearly all the measurements, are in reeds. But the altar is nearly always, nearly always, with one exception, is nearly always measured in cubits. So just tuck that away. There is a reason for that. The altar is measured in cubits, and hopefully we'll get to why that is tonight. So here he measures the altar, 100 cubits. Here it is. There's a quotation. So there's the, the altar right in the centre, 100 cubits long and 100. And it says that it's before, in that verse, before the house. Now that word before means in the face of. Wherever you look at it, wherever you turn, you see the altar. That's what that word means. It's the Hebrew word panem, before, behind, toward, in front of. So it, the altar faces the house in every direction. Now for those, there are different views about what the temple would be like. This passage 
tells us that the altar is in the center. Some people have drawings of the temple with the altar over in the corner and the altar somewhere else. But this passage, amongst others, tells us that the altar is right in the centre. The altar faces the house in every direction. Wherever you are in the house, you look into the centre, you see the altar. You don't have to be on the west or the north or the south just to see it. Wherever you are, you see the altar. It is before the house. Just That's the first point. And so the central aspect of the house is the altar. Now we can go across to chapter 43. Chapter 43. And it tells us, verse 12, chapter 43, verse 12. This is the law of the house upon the top of the mountain. Just notice that just in passing. This is the law, this is the mountain on which the altar is built, on top of the mountain. The whole limit thereof round about, that means everything round about this mountain, shall be most holy. It's the most holy place around this mountain. Behold, this is the law of the house. And these are the measures of the altar. And then the passages go on after the cubits. And the cubits goes on and it describes the altar now in detail in cubits. And it's quite significant what then follows here on. And it's very complex, but I've got all of that for you eventually when we get to it, what that means. So what is teaching us? It says this: the altar is the is the, the very centre. It's the law of the house. It's teaching us, and it's teaching everybody who comes up to the temple that our lives in the ecclesia is a life of sacrifice. Our life in the ecclesia is not all about me. You know what I'm going to get out of it. Life in the Ecclesia is all about what I can give, what I can do for the honour and glory of Yahweh, for the Lord Jesus Christ, what I can do for my brethren and sisters, what I can give in service. You know, we see a lot today in modern music and hymns which is all about this is for me, I want this for me, and I want to love this, and I want grace for this, and I want grace for me. And God gets left right out of the picture. But this is the law of this house in the kingdom age. It will, the very centre of that will be sacrifice, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ and what we have to do to associate with that. We have to emulate that in our lives. And so when we come back to this chapter 43, and we've looked at these verses, but we'll do it again just to reinforce the point in verse 10, chapter 43 and verse 10. Thou, son of man, show the house to the house of Israel that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the pattern. And if they be ashamed of all that they have done, show them the form of the house, the fashion thereof, the goings out thereof, the coming ins thereof, and all the forms thereof, and all the ordinances thereof, and all the forms thereof, and all the laws thereof, and write it in their sight that they may keep the whole form thereof, and all the ordinances thereof, and to do them. This is the law of the house. It's all about the altar. It's all about being ashamed, that Israel would be ashamed. Now the word to measure the pattern means to stretch out a line, to sum up the matter, to add up the matter, to add up, deduct, deduce what the scriptures are saying. It means to measure yourself on divine principles. And it says that they would be, if they are ashamed of that, 
it will have an impact upon them. Now, the word ashamed means humiliation or a wounding of the pride. When Israel sees the temple, and it should have this impact on us right now, they will be humiliated that the word has the, has the additional idea of being ashamed, not so much through God's punishment, but rather through God's goodness. They will see the temple and they will say, this is just absolutely amazing, the, the, this building and these principles and these lessons that this building teaches. I'm just so ashamed that I never comprehended any of that. I never really understood any of that. And of course, that's true for us today. If, if we don't understand what the temple's all about, it, will have, it should have that effect on us that we've really been ignoring the spiritual lessons of the temple. We need to be buoyed up and, and yes, be ashamed that we have missed that. And so the principles taught in the temple are designed to make us realise our inadequacy in the face of God's goodness, how good God is, how great Yahweh really is, and that will be manifested in the temple, as I've pointed out with those three words in my previous study. I'm not going to go back there again, just mention those three words, spirit, water and blood, as in 1 John chapter 5. And so they were to, to look at all these principles, they were to, when they were shown that was meant, meant they were to perceive and to understand the things, that the forms, the specific detailed design, the fashion, the arrangement of how things would be done, the goings out, the, the, the porchways where they would exit out of the temple and the comings in, the porches, the entrance gates where they would be coming in, the forms, the specific detailed designs again, the ordinances, the, the statutes, the laws and the prescriptions and the laws, the, the doctrines, the, that's what the word means, the precepts, the instruction that would come from the temple. It was designed to teach and is now designed to teach all of those principles. And so when we look at that and we look at that innermost part of the temple there, we see that inner circle is the most holy and then you've got the holy place. And it's the most holy place, the area where the sons of Zadok function. And you'll notice now that the altar is now within the most holy under the new dispensation. Whereas previously, the altar was outside of the holy place. Now the altar has been moved right into the centre of the holy place. Let me show you what I mean. There's the tabernacle. Where's the altar? Well, the altar's outside. But in the kingdom age, the altar will be moved right into the most holy place. Under the old mosaic dispensation, the altar was located in the outer court. But in the kingdom age, the way into the most holy will be breached. And the altar, that is Christ, will now be positioned within the most holy. And so Paul could say in Hebrews, the way into the holiest of all was not yet manifest while the first tabernacle was standing. But now, as Brother Thomas says, there will be no labour of water between the temple and the altar for the seed of Zadok to wash in before they enter the temple. You can see where the labour is. The priest would offer the sacrifices and they'd come down to the labour, they'd have to wash themselves, then they would go into the tabernacle uh, tent and perform their services in there. There's not going to be a labour. There won't be any labour there. These washings and cardinal ordinances are abolished. For those who approach the altar and enter the, are like their prince, holy and undefiled. They are the sons of Zadok, being devoid 
of evil in the flesh. Now when I say they're devoid of evil in the flesh, we don't mean there's something in the flesh that if you look at our flesh we've got evil flowing through it. When it says the evil in the flesh, it's talking about mortality and sin proneness. Our constitution now. So when our scriptures, when our statement of faith talks about a, a, a sentence, for example, clause 5, a sentence which defiled and became a physical law of their being, it means that man is mortal and that he is sin prone. It doesn't mean that he's got something flowing through his body that's evil. The evil things are the things that are in his mind, the evil thoughts and, and sin proneness, which is part of his physical constitution, the bias to sin, the proneness to sin. But they will be devoid of that because they will be immortalised. They will not be mortal. They will not have sin proneness. These sons of Zadok will be immortal priests. And so that's what John Thomas means. And that's what that word really means. Being devoid of evil in the flesh, they will be immortalised. They will no longer be burdened down with mortality and burdened down with the, the bias, the proneness of the mind, always to do that to please itself and to displease God. And so this is the law of the house, it says there in chapter 43. Christ has breached the most holy, he has broken through the veil of his flesh and now is a high priest forever and as such can officiate within the holiest of all at the altar within. And so Christ is the altar, in fact he is the whole temple and he epitomises the indwelling of Yahweh. Now here's this quotation that I mentioned at the beginning where the psalmist says his soul longeth, yea, even fainteth for the courts of Yahweh. Now the psalmist had some idea about the temple because he was told that he would build a house for Yahweh. Uh, there would be a spiritual house and there would be a physical house. So he longed to be in these courts. We've had a brief mention of the courts already. But now we're, this is a picture of what the courts look like. Here's one of the courts of the house of Yahweh. And the psalmist desired to be in one of these courts. Now, the concept was based on Solomon's temple. In Solomon's temple, you've got a court of the priests, you've got a court of Israel, then you've got a court of the Gentiles. And of course, in Ephesians, it tells us through the work of Christ, the court, the wall of petition was broken down between the, so the Gentiles, like us, can become part of the Commonwealth of Israel. We can enter into that court, we can enter into, in fact, we can come right in to the holy place if we are immersed into the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Solomon's temple had an extra court for Gentiles. It was called Solomon's porch. There was provision for strangers not in covenant relationship with Yahweh. Entry into the inner part of that court was a pain of death. They couldn't enter into that inner part. In the millennial temple, the wall has been broken down by Christ and all men circumcised in heart and flesh will be able to enter into the millennial temple in the age to come. Now that's an important point. Under the Jewish temple, they couldn't do that. In the millennial temple, they'll be able to enter into nearly all the courts. Not the, not the inner court, but most of the courts. So in the kingdom, there are no outside worshippers. There will be nobody with their own brand of religion. Now I've got a passage there that's very rarely looked at. Just have a look in Zechariah chapter 12. 
which is a reference to this point we're talking about. Zechariah chapter 12. Uh, it's chapter 13. Yes, I can't even read my own printing. It's chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 2. And it shall come to pass in that day, said Yahweh of armies, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land and they shall no more be remembered and also I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirits to pass out of the land. Now I think I've got that quote on the screen. Yes, there it is. So there will be nobody in the kingdom age that will be able to practice wrong teaching. There will be no other religions, if you like. There will be no Catholic Church, there will be no Church of England, there will be no (coughs) Evangelicals, there will be no Pentecostals. There's going to be no outer court. And this is the reference. This is language now from Revelation chapter 11, treading upon the ecclesia as they have in, in the past ages. And it shall come to pass, it goes on to say, verse 4, verse 3, it shall come to pass that when any shall yet prophesy, then his father and his mother that begat him shall say unto him, Thou shalt not live. For thou speakest lies in the name of Yahweh, and his father and his mother that begat him shall thrust him through when he prophesied. Now what it's saying is that if someone comes along and starts to preach wrong doctrine and wrong teaching in the kingdom age, even his own parents will do something with him, get rid of him, thrust him out. It will not be allowed. So Gentiles will be allowed into the the parts of the temple. They'll, they'll have to walk through the waters first, they'll have to be instructed in the things of the truth, but they'll, that's, they're going to the temple to be taught, so they will be allowed there. So things have changed. In the Jewish temple, that couldn't happen. The Gentiles will, because there will be no other religion. This is the only place in the world where the truth will be taught. And so these next three slides, I've got to thank our brother Jim Carey for these three slides, which just give us an idea of these courts. You know, the psalmist said that he desired to dwell in the courts of Yahweh. Here they are. There's the outer court in blue. The inner court, you see there, is lived the, the most holy, not the most holy. The inner court is the holy place. The Gentiles could go into there where you can see those pink arrows. And then the most holy, as that's the part of the temple where only the immortal priests can go. So where those red lines are now appearing on the screen, yes, that's where the Gentiles will come in, mortal access, in and out. So they will be able to go into those courts and there they'll be taught and they'll be awestruck by the wonders of that temple. The eastern side of the temple will be reserved for the prince and for his bride and there will not be any access there, we believe. All right, just in conclusion then, because we are just about out of time, this, we don't hear about this very often, but as the tabernacle was covered by a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud during the day and fire by night, so the temple in the future age will have this covering like a canopy over the top. In fact, in the scriptures it's likened to a, 
where the Jew was married, when the Jews were married, they would get under a canopy. It's the same word. The bride of Christ will be under this canopy. The most holy place will be protected there. And now it tells us that in this passage of, of uh, Isaiah chapter 4 and verse 5. I've got the revised version here, but your version does say almost the same thing if you've got an authorised version. And Yahweh will create over the whole habitation of Mount Zion, notice the reference to Mount Zion, and over her assemblies a cloud and a smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night, for over all the glory shall be spread a canopy. It's going to be this beautiful canopy. So as people come all the way up from the uh, from Yahweh Shemar, from the motel city, they'll see this at night, this beautiful cloud, the glory of fire by night and a cloud by day. It will be an awe-inspiring sight. And so then, just in conclusion, just coming back to this law of the house, to this altar that is in the centre of the house, just the number of times that it is referred to as a mountain. This is the law of the house upon the top of the mountain. And we've got there, at the bottom of that slide, another quotation from this time Psalm 24. Who shall ascend into the hill of Yahweh? Well, he who has a pure heart and clean hands, it says. And of course, it's a reference to the temple because the word hill is the same word. It's the word ha. Every time, let them bring me unto thy holy hill and to thy tabernacles, the psalmist says in Psalm 43. Great is Yahweh in the mountain of his holiness, Psalm 48. Same word. Beautiful for situation is Mount Zion. The, the scriptures are full of this reference to this mountain on which the altar will be perched in this glorious temple of the future age. And so the, it's telling us that the altar will be elevated and it will be there for all to see in the kingdom age. And of course, the prophet Isaiah says, and, many, and we quote this quotation all the time in our public lectures, but we probably really don't ever think about what it's really saying. It's talking about the temple and the altar and the mountain right in the middle of the temple because it says, and many people shall go and say, come ye and let us go up to the mountain, a reference to where the altar is of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. So we're going to finish it there, brethren and sisters. We haven't got anywhere near the end. I didn't even really get to deal with the, the altar, which I would have liked to have dealt with, but you know, we just haven't got time. Sorry about that. Uh, but we're, look, we've, we've had some wonderful lessons to take with us and a vision of that beautiful kingdom age. And the, our responsibility as, as sons of Zadok, as immortal priests, we are preparing for that day. <coughs> And our life in the Ecclesia might be difficult, but it's a great opportunity to apply the principles of the truth.